Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. Over the past few years, the world has come to recognize Abbott as a company dedicated to helping people live happier and healthier lives. In this podcast series, we'll talk with the healthcare leaders, the executives, and the engineers who are working every day to develop new technologies to help people live their best lives. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. This is episode two, so it's actually welcome back. But if you're new to the Abbott Talks podcast, Device Talks is teaming up with the folks at Abbott to give their executives, their leaders, the opportunity to share their stories and to share Abbott's mission to help patients with new medical technology. So today, we'll speak with Dr. Alan Burton. He is Divisional Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Abbott's Neuromodulation Business. So we'll talk a lot about Abbott's neuromodulation portfolio and about how it's helping people who are suffering with pain to get some relief We'll talk about other conditions as well. Dr. Burton previously had served as chairman of the Department of Pain Medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He ultimately joined Abbott in October 2015. We'll go over his background, his experience, his expertise, and of course, Abbott's portfolio in just a moment. But before we begin this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast, these podcasts can't happen without our great sponsors. And I'd like to bring in our great sponsor of this episode, Resonant Link. I'm speaking with CEO and co-founder Grayson Zulaf. Grayson, tell us a bit about Resonant Link. What does Resonant Link do? Yeah, so Resonant Link is number one in wireless power for implantable medical devices. And our mission is really to make the standard of care for active implantables a rechargeable standard. So right now, for people that have pacemakers or mini neurostimulators, they need a surgery to replace the device, to replace the battery when it runs out. And that could be as frequently as every year or every decade, but that requires an invasive surgery to replace them. Resonant Link, the company that I co-founded, was really launched to make the future of these devices rechargeable so that people don't need surgeries when their batteries run out. And recharging them is most importantly non-invasive, but also fast, it's seamless, it's easy to use, and it's something that fits nicely into their lives. I will hear more from Grayson Zuloff of Resident Link a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about Resident Link, which was a sponsor of Device Talks Boston, go to its website, resident-link.com. Well, Dr. Alan Burton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Nice to talk to you today. Excellent timing. I know Abbott's had a lot of news in the neuromodulation space, so I'm excited to, to drill down on what's new and what you had going on before and, and into the, the pain space overall. But as always, we like to give our audience a sense of who's doing the talking and who's doing the explaining by learning a little bit about our guest's background. So, Alan, how did you find your way uh, into medicine? Thanks, Tom. Well, it goes, you know, it goes way back, of course, to college and so forth. But I was always interested in science and I, I got into medicine. Really, I was clear when I was going to college that I wanted to go into medicine. 
And then as I got through medical school, I directed myself into anesthesiology. And it, it just occurred to me that one of the most uh, fascinating and developing areas in anesthesiology was the treatment of chronic pain. This is back in the 90s when, mm. uh, when you know, back in, in the dark ages, a long time ago. Uh, and then I, uh, after an anesthesia residency, I did what's called a chronic pain fellowship. So I got an extra year of specialty training in addressing um, chronic pain in, in all its manifestations in, in patients. And then embarked on a career for about 20 years in practice, um, half of which I was in kind of an academic setting, half of which I was in private practice. During part of that career, I got involved uh, increasingly in clinical research, which brought me uh, gradually closer to some of the uh, neuromodulation therapies, some of the devices, and some of the newer technologies that, that we're now using very in a much more routine way. To, to help treat patients' chronic pain and, and other neurological symptoms electrically. And through that journey, when I was involved in research, I got closer to Abbott gradually through a couple of studies, got to know them. And then at some point they approached me and said, hey, would you ever consider coming inside our company and, and kind of in a medical director role? And it was it was super exciting. That was about seven years ago now, a little more than that. And it's been it's been a really exciting journey as we've continued to kind of advance the space. And, and it seemed uh, in, a, in a way it was a natural progression through uh, through taking care of chronic pain patients for about 20 years and then through doing research and then coming inside the company. It's been it's been a really um, exciting, exciting journey. And it will you know, it, it's been a very exciting time in this space, as we'll talk about in the next. Uh, yeah. No, this has been a lot of uh, the the late '90s and in 2000s was when this really started to to get traction, and I'd never really made the connection between anesthesiology and pain relief before. I guess that that was more of a matter of consciousness. But what is the connection there? And I'm just not aware of it, which is always possible. I'm not the, aware of a lot the of background. Things. Yeah, the background uh, in the well worldwide, and then and then in the U.S. specifically, probably about. Two thirds, maybe three fourths of the specialists that treat chronic pain patients have an anesthesiology background. Okay. And there's another group of specialists that are involved in chronic pain treatment that have a what's called a physical medicine and rehabilitative PM&R background that that also go into pain pain fellowship and then uh, treating pain patients. Those uh, make up the bulk of the specialists that treat chronic pain patients. And then there's a, uh, a small group of neurologists that are that are kind of involved in the therapies also. And then a group of surgeons that are involved in it, which is a little bit of a separate track. But overall, probably the bulk of, of chronic pain physicians are anesthesiologists, then PM&R or rehabilitation physicians, and then a group of surgeons, neurosurgeons, and mm-hmm. then orthopedic spine surgeons that are involved in using these therapies and, and really addressing uh, chronic pain and other neurological issues. Interesting. And just going back to your your move for one moment to, from medicine to Abbott, I know you you also had some uh, role. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. You were with a co-founder of a, was that a consultancy company? Uh, did you have any other sort of corporate activity or, or was the move to Abbott your big move there? And and yeah. how was how is life different from practicing medicine to to working in the company is there anything you you miss or was it was it a big transition sure, sure. yeah it, you know it was um it, it was it was a very interesting move i mean a lot of the research is particularly related to technology and devices is led uh, by company interest and and company development of these advanced technologies a small amount of it is governmentally funded but the bulk of it relies on really companies to to uh, create the technology and then to to guide uh, some of the studies and and uh, are really kind of behind some of the some of the evidence creation for them. 
that then leads to FDA approvals, leads to insurance company adoption of these therapies and, and allowance of them into treatment algorithms. So it's a it's a bit of a complex ecosystem. And yeah, my, my journey, I was in a large academic institution, uh, MD Anderson in Houston, where I kind of led the pain program there for a little over a decade. And that was in private practice for a stint before that and a stint after that. And so I've had a, I've worn a lot of different hats. Um, I I have some technology that I helped start when I was at MD Anderson. It led to a small startup company, and that journey is is sort of parallel and and separate, but was kind of in the background. And that was a, a very, very small company. It really hasn't gone anywhere, unfortunately, over over several years. But it was very interesting because it it got me into the discovery process. It allowed me to see there's kind of a parallel world of small startup companies creating technology around unmet needs, such as chronic pain or other sort of orphan diseases uh, that are out there. There's really a broad ecosystem where those companies seek generally a combination of either governmental funding through NIH and related sources, or uh, startup funding through things like venture capital or private equity groups that seed fund some of those smaller companies. And usually what happens with those is the more promising companies go on uh, through a discovery journey into early phase clinical work. And at some point, often they get acquired by large companies. And so that parallel journey that I took, it really started when I was in academics, continued a little bit when I was in private practice. And that company never reached the phase where it would be acquired. It, It, the technology just wasn't promising enough. So that kind of faded out naturally as I joined Abbott, but it was a lot of fun. It gave me a great insight into the whole kind of ecosystem that's really out there around medical discovery. How do these things happen? You know, do big companies drive them? Does the NIH drive them? Do small startup companies drive them? And it turns out that all of the above is true. And really, it works as a a large uh, ecosystem together. That's great. Now, that's certainly invaluable experience uh, when dealing with the the many different players. So, all right, well, let's zoom over now to the topic at hand, talking about neuromodulation and pain. Can you give us an overview of sort of the population of pain patients? I mean, there are many sources of pain from back pain to diabetic neuropathy. How is it measured? I guess, how large would you put it at? And just talk about its its overall impact. Yeah, thanks for the question, Tom. I think that chronic pain has been has been called one of the silent diseases or silent epidemics in the country because it often is a companion problem that comes along with the primary disorder. So patients that have cancer, diabetes, other diseases, many of those patients end up suffering with chronic pain or part of, as part of their osteoarthritis or part of their so-called primary disease. But what really often ends up debilitating the patient is the, the overriding symptomatology of chronic pain and related debility. The primary disease is sort of lost in the in the fog of the of the pain and the and the progressive uh, disability that many of these patients suffer. Estimates say that there's approximately 50 million Americans that suffer from chronic pain. Wow. Those estimates vary a little bit. You, you, most worldwide surveys show somewhere between one and five, and some show as high as one and three. That's probably the one is probably too high. The other one's probably too low globally really suffer from ongoing persistent chronic pain in spite of attempts at medical care to address that, but they, the patients continue to suffer from this chronic pain. The 50 million Americans that suffer from chronic pain, that's really an inclusive number that incorporates many conditions like you just said. The vast majority of that is back pain of some type or another. 
The other sort of related problem with back pain is degenerative spinal conditions over life. As our life expectancy has grown longer, mm -hmm. better treatment of cardiovascular disorders, better treatment of cancers and infectious diseases, we're living longer and longer. Uh, if we look backwards, we're living probably a decade longer than, uh, than we were a short time ago. And our spine gradually, gravity takes takes hold, and we we all succumb to some degenerative changes in our spine. And some people suffer uh, quite a bit of pain as a result of of that degeneration over time. And related degeneration of joints in the knees, hips, other areas that that over time grinding and osteoarthritis becomes an increasingly uh, prevalent problem, really globally as the global age life expectancy expands. We're looking at 50 million Americans with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Half of those have something called the high impact chronic pain, at least probably 20 to 25 million. What's that? The, the pain is, is um, noted to be a problem, but it actually leads to disability. There are quantifiable limitations on the patient's ability to work, walk, uh, function outside of the home, do their activities of daily living, uh, sometimes even things such as dressing themselves, walking, things like that. So it, it really, at that point, it's uh, it becomes more than just a, a dreadful symptom. It actually becomes life-altering and life-limiting. In many ways, uh, the economic impact of that high-impact chronic pain is so terrific because not only is that person incurring medical costs, but often they become unproductive and sometimes mm -hmm. they lose their ability to do their vocation or to continue to have, for an example in the US, to have medical insurance or medical coverage. So they're not only facing a lot of medical expenses, but they're becoming disabled and unable to sort of do their vocation or make a living, so to speak, or keep their medical insurance, which which really becomes um, you know, a higher acuity issue for many of those patients. I will take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Resonance Link. Once again, I am speaking with Grayson Zuloff. Grayson, tell us, how does Resident Link help medical device companies? We really think about working with medical device companies as their partners in power is what we like to call it. And so when you look at an active implantable device, whether that's a pacemaker, a cardiac device, or a neurostimulator, these are really power and energy devices. You, know, you have a battery inside the body, you're delivering some sort of stimulation, and then you need to recharge that battery to make it easy to use and long lasting. And so Resonant Link works directly with medical device OEMs as their partners in this whole power and energy stack with a very specific expertise and technology suite on the wireless charging side. So today we work with 18 medical device OEMs, and that number is growing every day to deliver this fast, easy to use, and efficient wireless charging to their patients. And that's great. And let's drill down a bit. Can you talk specifically about your wireless charging capabilities and what makes your technology different from the wireless charging that some of our listeners may have tried in the past, or maybe they're even using it today in their medical devices? Absolutely. So when we launched Resonant Link in 2018, 
it was really launched around this completely new way of building the coils that sit at the heart of a wireless charger. So our coils, which were invented at Dartmouth College in 2013 and really perfected over the next five years, have about five to 10 times lower losses or lower heat generation than a conventional wireless charging coil that people are familiar with or might be in a medical device today. And this really allows us to push the limits of what's possible on recharging for active implantables. So we just announced a Philvast project with Abbott where since 1965, people have been looking to eliminate the driveline on ventricular assist devices, but kept running into a heat generation problem. And in just nine months of working with them, we were able to deliver on the specification. So over 10 watts of continuous power uh, and, and show a path to market there for the first time. Another example of, of what this technology has enabled is today for a rechargeable spinal cord stimulator, it takes about two to three hours to recharge and patients need to sit very still because you can't jostle and, and misalign the, the coils at any time. We just came out and announced at Device Talks Boston a 2.5 watt charging platform for devices like spinal cord stimulators that reduces this charge time from two to three hours down to 15 to 20 minutes and lets patients move around while charging. So really at the end of the day, the technology is the foundation, but we're trying to deliver something that makes patients' lives better. That's great. We'll hear a little more from Resident Link CEO Grayson Zuloff a little later in the podcast. Once again, if you want to find out more information, go to resident-link.com. I've suffered with two bouts of, uh, I thought, severe sciatica in my life, and that was all consuming. It's all you thought about every morning getting up and just trying to sit at a desk and do work. A lot of workarounds that I'm sure only exacerbated the situation. It's a real problem. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't need to tell you that. And as you were talking about it, I found myself moving from my slouch to to straightening my spine a bit. I'm like, damn it, <laughs> I got to improve my habits. So let's talk about the the role of of neuromodulation. When does that sort of come into play? I mean, there's there's post surgical opportunities, there's non surgical opportunities, but how is that coming to help alleviate some of this pain? Yeah, great, great question. So, so we have two therapies, one called spinal cord stimulation, the other called uh, dorsal root ganglion stimulation. These are both applied by experts in, in the field. And so the journey that the patient goes on to ultimately get to these therapies often takes place with either the primary care doctor or a specialist and who, who attempts to address their issue. For example, a patient goes with uh, their back pain to a surgeon they get a decompressive surgery or laminectomy or get their disc uh, taken out and the, the sciatica goes away. And for many of those patients, that's all they need. They get back into life and off they go, or and even some of them don't require that surgery. Many of them get physical therapy or some injections or a combination of that and get better. For an unfortunate segment, the symptoms either come back quickly after treatment or the treatment is really not effective. And so the patient, in spite of physical therapy, in spite of medications, in spite of even surgeries or sometimes repeated surgeries, the patient continues to have persistent symptoms. And often in the past, I would say, you know, decades ago or back, let's say in the 90s, when I, when I went to medical school, there were really kind of limited treatment options at some point for, for these patients. And some of those were medications. Some of those eventually 
turned into even opioids, which became a real uh, issue where um, the opioids either weren't helpful or sometimes created another problem with sometimes dependence or addiction. And so there were an awful lot of patients who, in spite of a really appropriate treatment for their problem, continue to have pain. And one of the ways that we've increasingly started understanding this is that, uh, let's take the spine as an example, um, you can have structural degeneration in the spine and where it is impacting and squeezing on some of the nerves. The nerves are compressed and they're kind of alarming pain to the body. So for really directing the patient to get medical attention, the surgeon decompresses it and, and takes the pressure off the nerve, but the patient continues that pain. And the analogies that we've started using through neuroscience and through a, a better understanding of this, if you take the analogy of a bridge that has electrical wiring running through it, the surgeons are often very good at taking a crumbling bridge and really making it sturdy, building it back up, opening the roadway, uh, making sure the pillars are solid, making sure it's not it's not slipping anymore, it's not going to crumble. But the wiring harness that's in there, either through the degenerative process where the nerves have been compressed and irritated, or sometimes the surgery to correct it, uh, the nerves or the electrical wiring can be very irritated. And, and in fact, the structure is quite uh, well treated and the surgery went, was very, you know, let's say successful in, in addressing the stability, but the wiring harness was damaged either through the degenerative process or is not, is, is very um, slow to return to normalcy if it ever will. So, so it turns out that there, there's some parallels when we often put this in layman's terms of having the surgeons often in a structural fixing role. And then where we come in or the chronic pain therapies come in is to help address the wiring or the short circuits, let's say, that are left in some of that wiring, which is translated in the patient into chronic pain signals that then they have to deal with. And it is a little bit of a conundrum for a while where the surgeon says, well, gee, it looks like the surgery went really well. And the patient says, well, I don't really feel really well. Like I'm really, I'm glad my spine's not crumbling anymore, but I still have this ongoing painful symptomatology. And many times before the neuroscience uh, has really advanced, we almost, uh, some of the patients were either blamed for that, or sometimes it was felt that, gee, they're just not of a strong enough fiber to, to push through it, or they're just tough enough. But in fact, we, we really know now that there are direct neural trauma and, and sometimes very, very subtle or very light neural trauma can cause uh, tremendous symptoms in a, in a very real way. And what happened, and I think why medicine often had this like blame the patient mentality in chronic pain was because having chronic pain for a while tends to manifest in psychological ways. Patients become very depressed, very anxious, very discouraged about not having an answer for that or having doctors puzzled about what to do next. So that, that got conflated where, oh, well, this is really kind of in your mind or something like that, where it's not yeah. really a real problem anymore. But in fact, it is a, it's a massively real problem with massive consequences. So we've really, I think we've learned to, to really understand that better. And then that's led us to better and more effective ways uh, electrically to treat that. And so we're really applying these treatments to patients who have failed attempts at, let's say, structurally fixing the problem or the damage or whatever's happening. And then the patients that are left with persistent symptoms become candidates for, okay, let's address those painful symptoms. So that's really where where we believe uh, most of neuromodulation fits on the pain side. And then there's some analogies on the movement disorder side, which I'm sure we'll, we'll tap into that a little bit later, where for most of these kinds of medical devices in the neuromodulation space, for sure, 
the patients go through conservative care first, and they go through standard medication management or standard physical therapy, standard approaches before they ever get to a neuromodulation device. Interesting. So are we at a point where you're able to identify where the damage is to a nerve and, and have an idea of what level of pain should be caused by that? Or that, I imagine it's still very much individual, that someone may have, two people may have identical injuries to their nerves, but one is feeling tremendous pain and one is not bothered at all. Yeah, I'll, gi- I'll give you a good example of this. And, and it's a great question. Our dorsal root ganglion stimulator, uh, DRG stimulation, is approved for a, a complex regional pain syndrome and causalgia. Causalgia is a, is a persistent, severe pain following nerve trauma. Now, there's a procedure, I'll, I'll just pick out knee replacement, that is done hundreds of thousands of times a year in the U.S., for patients that have osteoarthritis of the knee or a degenerative knee that's progressive and that's not responded to exercise therapy, injections, things like that. So it's a very commonly done procedure. There's a great deal of science around it. There's been uh, progressive sophistication in the way the knee uh, joints are sized for, for patients. There's now some custom fitted devices that are 3D printed. I mean, it's done robotically. Yep. And there's, there's a real precision to that surgery and there's a, there's a whole sub-expertise in joint replacement orthopedics uh, where those surgeons get really, really uh, good at that. And they do it and they try to do it very much algorithmically in the same way every time. And in spite of that real surgical precision and advancement in there, there continues to be a, a small percent of patients. And maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15%, something like that. Maybe it's 8%, depending on the severity of pain you look at, who have terrible ongoing pain after that kind of knee replacement. And, and so the vast majority of patients do really well after knee replacements. And you see them you know, playing tennis again or riding bicycles or really enjoying life. But a small segment has really severe pain in that knee following that. Now, part of the surgery damages some of the nerves around the knee. It sort of has to. There have to be incisions made to get that new titanium joint in there. Is this, so, the, is this the similar to the pain they were feeling before? Is it a continuation of the same pain or, or is it felt as a, as a new pain that was brought on by the procedure or? Yes. So the answer is yes and yes. So uh, often the patients uh, after knee replacement, I mean, the vast majority get a tremendous improvement following the knee surgery. However, there is quite a bit of pain around the surgery itself. So the initial postoperative time for almost all knee replacement patients has some discomfort right at the time of surgery. Mm-hmm. And then and then the vast majority of those patients continue to improve with physical therapy, get back on their feet, get back, have a full, nice recovery from that surgery. But unfortunately, a small percent of patients, which because there's so many knee replacements done, a small percent of patients becomes a relatively large number of people. So a small percent of people, the post-operative pain does not diminish in the way that it does in most people. So okay. they, they continue to have... Uh, some new pain that really wasn't there before the knee surgery. And then uh, some of their persistent pain also appears to be still there and, and still ongoing. And it appears that the nerves in a subset of patients that that nerve irritation experienced either from the osteoarthritis itself or from the surgery or combination seems to be over symptomatic in a small group of patients where they have really persistent symptoms in spite of the surgery being technically successful, there's not an infection in the joint, the joint's not loose, you know, there's a kind of an algorithm of other things that could cause, let's say, structural problems in a postoperative knee that have to be ruled out, make sure there's no smoldering infection in there, make sure the joint's not loose in some way. 
But there's a, a the my my uh, reason for bringing that out is we believe that that perhaps it's even a genetic predisposition in a small number of patients Interesting. That, that predisposes them to some type of persistent nerve irritation um, after trauma. Whereas the vast majority of people heal up nicely and have no ongoing problems from that. Some of the people appear to um, to have these persistent symptoms, you know, in spite of the surgeons really doing it the same way every time. And then the, those patients are have a real unfortunate situation where they tried to get you know help for their knee and now they're as bad or worse as they were before the knee replacement and what we found electrically by a dorsal ganglion uh, stimulation approach to the knee to to the focal nerves that really bring those symptoms from the knee we can really dampen down those painful signals to the point where the patient then um, is able to to really benefit from the structural improvement in the knee the painful symptoms are are greatly alleviated uh, down, let's say 70, 80, 90%. And then the patient's able to get back into their rehabilitation program, get back on their feet and get back going. But it's that, it's really that that same analogy that I described earlier where the certain structural work and the wiring harness in, in some subset of patients continues to uh, trigger off noxious, painful signals. That's fascinating. Because you, and to your point about it being dismissed earlier, I mean, covering this industry 20 years ago, you, you were told knee replacement surgeries are 98% effective. You know, there's just, there, it's almost hundred, like there was a whole, apparently if those numbers are, are right. And with robotic surgery and all the other technology, that number has come down to justify this new technology. But this is another instance where I think a lot of people's post-op struggling were, were just, uh, were just forgotten. So where is the dorsal, the dorsal root ganglion and, and how does that work? Sure. So every sensory nerve in the body, from the feet all the way to the hands, to the to the trunk, connects into the spinal cord, where the sensory signals of touch and light touch and pain are brought into the spinal cord and then up to the brain, where they're sensed as, oh, you have pain in your foot or pain in your knee, in the, in the, in the case of somebody getting knee replacement. And where those nerves connect into the spinal cord, each of those nerves has a little ganglion of nerves or a little bump called the dorsal root ganglion before they connected to the spinal cord. Okay. So what happens, and again, back uh, 30 years ago, um, when I was in medical school, we didn't know what the dorsal root ganglion did. We didn't know what function that had. Over the past decade of neuroscience research, we now understand that that little group of nerves that's really involved in connecting a peripheral nerve into the spinal cord serves a very important function. And what it serves is a filtration function that it can either dampen out pain signals, it can either enhance pain signals and make them worse. And it also seems to be a connection from the nervous system, the sensory nervous system to generating inflammation. So that if you injure your knee or if you have a knee injury process, the dorsal root ganglion appears to be involved in making sure your brain knows to stay off your knee by amplifying the pain, but also helps the body direct inflammatory components to heal the knee, to the, to the knee. So this little um, nucleus of, of sensory nerves serves a very, very important function in the way the body and the brain and the whole nervous system interprets injury and, and acute pain and chronic pain. And so when it's uh, firing, let's say the patient's having persistent pain in spite of not really having a physical problem in the knee, the problem's been addressed, the problem's mm -hmm. been corrected, but they continue to have problems and pain in that, in that area that really at that point serves no um, advantage to the patient. It's, it's just irritating and it's just preventing them from walking, from recovering. It's this chronic pain. By putting a small dorsal root ganglion stimulation device near that dorsal root ganglion, 
we really, with a very small amount of energy, can normalize the activity in that dorsary ganglion instead of it just firing off pain signals over and over again, almost like a like a fuse box. Let's say mm-hmm. the peripheral nerves come into and, and let's say the dorsary ganglion is the fuse. Instead of that fuse just firing off pain signals with a small amount of electricity around it and a very specific programming approach, it, the activity of that really normalizes and, and the normal sensation comes through. It's not amplified. There's no erratic signals coming through it. And indeed, many of our dorsal ganglion patients tell us, in addition to, to the pain feeling better, they really feel that their sensation and their feeling from the wherever that, that area is they feel like it's normalized, like they have their old leg back or like they've got their, their, their ankle back or wherever the problem is. And it's a little bit like um, if you've been to the dentist and most people can kind of relate to this in the transition from either having dental pain or being numb with the, with the dentist numbing something and going in and out of numbness, sometimes you get a very distorted feeling there. Your cheek feels weird. It feels like your face is, is getting a different size or is greatly you know exaggerated. And sometimes when the patient has persistent pain, they have a lot of abnormal sensations related to that pain. It's the pain, but it's also, there are uh, really some strange related signals that happen to that. For example, in severe knee pain, sometimes patients can't tolerate even light touch to the knee. A little breeze, a little air flowing across the knee feels like a blowtorch, or if they can't wear wear pants, Mm -hmm. just the cotton or just the fabric laying on their knee is amplified, it's very noxious. So so often uh, what we find, particularly with dorsal root ganglion stimulation, is that the patients get alleviation of their painful symptoms, and often they get a more normalized feeling overall of all the sensory trafficking that's kind of coming through that dorsal root ganglion. And is that... Mm-hmm. Is that planted locally uh, near, would it be near the knee per se, or do you find, do no, you find no, no. This, it's, um, this? It, it really is um, implanted near where the, the nerves, let's say that serve the area of sensation are in the spine. So it's near where the dorsal ganglion plugs into the spine, the knee, the lumbar spine. So then let's talk about spinal cord stimulation and how are the, how are the two different? Is, is, is dorsal root ganglion a subset of spinal cord stimulation or is it an entirely different class? I, I would say that at a 10,000 foot view, they're very closely related. You, you have, um, uh, their electrical implanted therapies were largely used for chronic pain disorders. So from that perspective, they are very similar. The devices look like they're, they're wiring coming off of a pacemaker looking implanted battery. So at a 10,000 foot view, they're very similar. The spinal cord stimulator goes near the spinal cord, which is the main um, central uh, highway of neural trafficking up to the spinal cord. These have been used for about 50 years. The first were put in in the, in the 70s and are, are very well understood. They're used to treat broad pain syndromes like pain throughout the entire trunk, throughout the entire spine, both legs, ongoing persistent pain in, that in, in sort of that category. They're implanted either with percutaneous leads that are, that are put through a needle or paddle leads, which are more like a little uh, flexible popsicle stick that a surgeon implants through an open surgery. Uh, those are two valid uh, used ways to put electricity onto that spinal cord area through what's called the epidural space behind the spinal cord. And usually these are put in the thoracic spine, occasionally up in the cervical spine, depending on where the patient's pain is located in the body. And that's that's spinal cord stimulation. Dorsal ganglion stimulation um, has has similarities in that the door, the the small wires that are used for this are placed initially in the same way as a spinal cord stimulator into the spinal area, 
but then they're directed out depending on the level of where the patient's pain is toward this little area where the nerve connects into the spinal cord called the dorsal ganglion. So they're, they're really um, placed more focally to address focal pain problems that the patient's having. For example, pain, severe pain in the knee, as I mentioned before, or after a hernia surgery or following a crush to the ankle. Often we think about these two therapies, the spinal cord stimulator as for more broad-based uh, pain in the body, more broad symptoms, and for focal pain, particularly related to a nerve damage or a crush injury to a, to a region of the body that's uh, focal, then you can uh, address that focal pain through the collection of, through dorsal root ganglion stimulation at the location specific to those, those areas where those nerves plug into the spinal cord. So that th those are kind of the, the differences. Now, when the patients are utilizing the device and, and have an implanted system and they're, they're getting good relief and they're, all, they're walking around, a patient on a day-to-day -day basis really won't feel any difference between those two treatments. They just feel that their symptoms are addressed and that they have an implanted device that's doing that. So from the user point of view and from the high-level 10,000-foot view of what does the device look like and battery and wires into the, into the spinal area, they have a lot of similarities, but there are some important nuanced differences really at the specialty level or at the, at the physician level. I will have our final visit with sponsor Resident Link. Once again, I'm speaking with Grayson Zuloff, the CEO. Grayson, how do you see the medical device industry changing? So everyone knows that rechargeable is a better patient experience than something that needs a surgery to replace it. But right now with conventional recharging systems, it's so frustrating for patients. It's so slow. It's so difficult to align. The implant depths are really shallow that a lot of patients and clinicians actually select a device that they'll need surgery for instead of one that's rechargeable. And the number one complaint for spinal cord stimulators is the recharge experience. So Resonant Link's goal is to use our technology, our tools, our team to really make rechargeable the standard of care and make it something that patients, clinicians, and device makers all embrace wholeheartedly and opt into as something that's better for patients to keep living their lives. Well, that is great. Thank you, Grayson. And thank you, Resonance Link, for sponsoring this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. If you'd like to find out more information about Resonance Link, it has some exciting news lately, go to resonantlink.com. That's R-E-S-O-N-A-N-T-Link with a K.com. I know we wanted to talk about movement disorders as well, but let's just focus on spinal stimulation right now because you've had some news there of late, some recent approvals from from the FDA. Let's first talk about sort of the the approval or was it an approval or expansion for for patients who needed pain relief but weren't eligible for surgery. Can you talk a bit about that recent news? Sure, sure. No, I'm excited to talk about that. So we received uh, FDA approval for a, we we have a study called the Distinct Low, uh, Low Back Pain Study. And we received FDA approval for the use of spinal cord stimulator devices to treat chronic back pain in people who have not had or are not eligible to receive back surgery. So we began calling this non-surgical back pain, although that is that is a tricky term because it really defines the the problem by the treatment, which is which is uh, tricky. Yeah, so it doesn't that's really, a good point. There's no way to really on the, on a street say, oh, you have non-surgical back or you have non-surgical back pain. 
that doesn't really mean anything to somebody who's looking on Google, trying to figure out their own back pain. It's really defined by a specialist seeing the patient and saying, well, there's nothing I can do to fix your kind of back pain. You know, it's not really surgical. You have uh, three levels of degenerative disc, you have mild narrowing at multiple levels, you have mild curvature, and you have three or four of these problems overlapping, none of which appear to be severe enough to require surgery, and none of which correspond exactly to your type of pain. And it turns out that this is a, a very common problem for every one or two patients that have surgical indications with back pain. There probably are several times that many patients who have severe back pain but don't have a surgical approach that will fix their type of back pain. It's either too diffuse, the, the degenerative changes, or the degenerative changes aren't substantial enough to really merit surgery, or they're in combination. There's a, a number of different things going on in the patient's spine. So we methodically did a, a large study to look at that patient population. It was really driven by this unmet need. Our studies and our looking out at groups of both looking at population studies focus group studies with patients, with uh, spine specialists, spine surgeons, interventional pain specialists. We found, for example, that of every 10 patients seen in a spine surgical clinic, one or two of them will get focal spine surgery to correct a problem. And as many as seven or eight of them will be told, hey, you don't need spine surgery. There's really nothing we can do surgically to treat your spinal pain. Now, many of those patients still will improve with things like physical therapy, chiropractic, in combination with medications or injections. There are other approaches, radiofrequency ablations. There's a lot of things that can be done for these spinal problems. But there are a large number of patients that continue to have persistent symptoms in spite of having the right kind of uh, conservative care. And so we, we really designed our study to look for those patients. And we worked with the FDA, we worked with commercial payers to say what would be a large enough study to be meaningful. We came up with what we think is a really big study in this space, 270 patients. We used 30 uh, centers across the country. We went to the best uh, spine centers that we could find that are very highly qualified, that are experts in the space. And very purposefully, we did half interventional pain sites and we were half of our investigators were spine surgeons because we really wanted their input on patients. And we wanted to make sure that we were looking at patients who did not have other options to correct their spine, their spine problems. So even the patients seen in interventional pain practices in this study were evaluated by a spine surgeon. And they were told, really, there's nothing correctable that we can do for your back pain. Was the only option for those patients before, would it have been just opioids and just painkillers? Well, it's... it's or, it, or the physical therapy, as you mentioned, but more... It, so this it's, all, it's, it's really a list of, of, of things, Tom, and it's physical therapy. It is chiropractic care. Yep. It is uh, massage. It is medications, including opioids, uh, yep. injections, radiofrequency ablations. There are other newer techniques, minimally invasive approaches to decompressions and other uh, types of all sorts of new minimally invasive approaches to the spine. And, and really it's all of those things. And so what we what we found, which I, I think you'll find interesting, we were able to enroll 270 patients really pretty quickly. It took us about a year to enroll this, this number of patients who are now at about a year follow-up in the, in the study. And so it was really, there were a lot of these patients out there, the enrollment went pretty fast. And we found that these patients were on average about 58 years old and had had 12.8 years of persistent back pain. And wow. so, so all, more than a decade of back pain. And during that decade, these patients had been through almost every treatment that we just outlined. And in fact, some of them had had as many as five rounds of physical therapy. Uh, some of them had had multiple rounds of chiropractic care. 
Most of them had been on opioids at some point. Two thirds of them were still on opioids. But in spite of those treatments, they were having severe pain. The pain was about a 7.8 on a zero to 10 scale. Oh my gosh. They were moderate to severely disabled on something called the Oswestry Disability Index. And about two thirds of them were beginning to have some anxiety and some persistent emotional issues related to their persistent back pain. So it was, a really, it, it was very eye-opening just the enrollment of the study to find that there were that many patients who had been having pain for that long in spite of having a, a lot of active treatment for it. So, so then we applied our, our therapy. There was a randomization. The highest level of evidence requires a randomized controlled trial. So the patients got into the stimulator group or into ongoing medical management, which could include injections. It could, okay. include, it could include other types of conservative care that maybe they didn't have. Most of them had had majority, most of that conservative care, but they were able to get more injection, anything except surgery. They could have more injections, more chiropractic, more uh, medications in the conservative medical arm versus the stimulator arm. And that was a coin flip. It's a kind of a 50-50 and a randomized controlled trial. So the patients who got the stimulator then went on, they get a trial procedure where you test run the stimulator for about a week as in an, a small outpatient procedure to see if it helps the pain. That's called the trial stimulation. Then if you have success in your trial, you get the device implanted. The rate in this study was about almost, it was about 87, 88% of the patients getting the trial. And just so I understand, they're not going through any of the other procedures or interventions. They've no, they, they, the they, only thing they're getting is the stimulation. Yeah. They, well, that... they, get, they get the stimulation, like their medications aren't stopped abruptly or they're okay. not like things that they're doing in an ongoing way. If they're doing an ongoing exercise program, just, they this is layered on top. Yeah. yeah it's, it's layered on top. And then gradually we find the need for the other things melts away. For example, in, in, in the spinal cord stimulation arm, when we look at the patients who got the implanted device, when they're, the primary end was assessed at six months comparing the stimulation versus the medical management arm. And the differences were dramatic. So substantial pain relief, substantial improvement in function, substantial improvement in emotional symptoms, and as well as lessening of other things like injections, like medications, uh, 45% reduction in opioids, for example, in the, in the stimulation arm, 86% having 50% of greater pain relief, 86% having significant improvement in function, uh, 85% having improvement in emotional processing in the stimulation arm. Versus in the medical management arm, there's about a, a 6% uh, success rate in that, in that arm. So there's still a few people who got benefit from seeing a spine specialist and having a different types of injections or different types of medications. But it was about 6% improvement in the medical management arm versus about an 85, 86% success rate in the stimulation arm. Dramatically different. After the six-month endpoint, the medical management arm could cross over. It's a, they're allowed to cross over. That That's... That's why people enter a randomized controlled trial. They're having symptoms. They want to get the active treatment. But if they randomize into the conservative arm, after the primary assessment endpoint, they can cross over and get the treatment if they want to. So we found over 85% of those patients then crossed over into the stimulation arm. I think it's, I think it's 88% or at least wow. percentage. And then they're having a similar amount of relief from the treatment. So we're, we're very gratified that the FDA looked at that data and gave us approval for that. We've had that data presented at a couple of meetings, the North American Spine Society meeting, North American Neuromodulation Society meeting, and we're about to have the first manuscript published from that, which will, will be an important step because we need that published literature to be able to go to the payers, to go to United Healthcare, to go to Blue Cross, and really ensure that they uh, see the value in it and that they adopt it with their coverage policies, which we um, 
which will be the next thing that we'll work on with that. So raising awareness to patients that this is FDA approved, Medicare will allow this to be done today. And then we'll be gradually convincing commercial payers that this has a value for this patient subset. The finding is that folks who go on this treatment, they're using less of the other treatment. So there could be a, a, co- a cost shift. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In, in addition to, you know, that that's just a looking at the cost of the medical care for the patient. But then if you look at in 10 plus years of debilitating pain, yeah, and absolutely. then you look at the, the improvement in functionality is dramatic. The improvement in pain relief is dramatic. These patients are able then to really become productive members of the society, integrate back into their lives. You know, many of them will be able to do things they couldn't do uh, previously. So there's just a win at every level. Yeah. And not, and not to put a dollar sign on everything. I mean, like I said, I've, I've experienced it twice and it's, it's a bleak moment in time where you're wondering, am I going to be able to pick up my kids? Am I, am I going to be like this for the rest of my life? It really is a, it's a dark spiral that you go down. I can't imagine doing that for 10 years it's, uh, or more. Uh, that's great news. Let's talk a bit about, I mean, we, we talked a lot about sort of back pain, but you had a great approval early this year for diabetic neuropathy. Can you talk a bit about the source of that pain and, and what the approval you had earlier this year will, will hopefully help relieve that? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're really excited about this indication, Tom. There's a, there's a significant public health, really almost crisis with the amount of diabetes that, that it, there is in the United States. It's probably 10% of the U.S. population has diabetes, about 34 million people. And most, most amazingly is there's probably 100 million with prediabetes based on their hemoglobin A1C. So the amount of, of diabetes out there is uh, large and it's a growing problem related to, uh, a lot of it is type 2 diabetes related to challenges with uh, managing uh, weight and diet and so forth. But it, there also is a substantial amount of type 1 diabetes. In any case, it's, it's 34 million Americans having diabetes, and we think that over the course of having diabetes, as many as 50% of patients eventually will have some nerve damage related to diabetes. Now, probably 20% of diabetics will have um, significant symptomatic diabetic neuropathy. Hmm. Some of them will even have, it, it's a little bit confusing, the exact etiology of this. We know it goes really is a, is a companion of diabetes for many patients. There appears to be microvascular damage in peripheral nerves that lead to this. In about half the cases, this comes on over time, living with diabetes. And in as many as half the cases, it can be a presenting symptom. So there can be people who are diagnosed. They go to their doctor. They go to a foot specialist, a podiatrist, because they're having foot pain. And then they're diagnosed with diabetes. So it can it can be a presenting symptom of diabetes. Oh, interesting. And it can often be found as uh, as the diabetes goes on and continues. Now, in many cases, um, when working with the endocrinologists, the, as they improve their di- their sugar control and improve their hemoglobin A1C and their their ability to uh, get their um, insulin level right if they're on insulin, with better sugar control, some of the neuropathy can be um, altered or can be improved to some extent, or you can delay the progression of it or slow down the symptoms. But in many cases, again, the damage is already done by the time the patient's having pain. And even with better sugar control, the the patient's uh, symptoms continue. And the way this often manifests is severe pain in the toes, in the feet, uh, burning pain. Um, It often feels like they're walking on uh, pins and needles. Um, There can be a little bit of numbness associated with it. So most people have had their hand or foot kind of fall asleep if you have a weird nerve position where you compress one of your nerves. And you know that discomfort that feels when your hand fell asleep or your foot fell asleep and how 
weird it feels when it's coming back to life and sometimes it's very uncomfortable. Many of those same type of symptoms are experienced by these patients with diabetic neuropathy, where they feel that their feet are spongy when they walk on them or or like they're walking on pins and needles, but they're partially asleep. And it's, it can be very, very uncomfortable in diabetic patients, particularly those who are, have uh, weight control issues. It can lead to a, a catch 22 where they're getting advice to take, do more steps, watch their step counts every day, get out of the house, take their dog on walks around the block, walk one mile, set goals, you know, walk uh, two miles, walk around the park. And they simply can't do it because their feet hurt so much. So they're really in this in this kind of double bind where they can't exercise more, although they're being asked to. It's a substantial problem. The medications used to treat this are often, there's some antidepressants, there's some um, anticonvulsants that are used to treat this. Hmm. Many of those have side effects. And some of the side effects are, are sleepiness, drowsiness, but some of them are weight gain. And that is particularly unfortunate in this patients who already have weight control issues. Also, the effectiveness of those treatments isn't very much. uh, Sometimes patients get 20, 30% of relief and have a bunch of side effects with those medications. So we know this is a, a significant problem for many diabetics. We know what the treatments are, the existing medical treatments, and they're not, uh, they're not great. So a lot of these patients are somewhat stuck uh, at the present time. We're working with our Abbott Diabetes Division colleagues to raise awareness that we now have this FDA-approved electrical treatment for this. And similar, similar to the way I described the back pain treatment with um, the electricity being delivered in the spine to the spinal cord, the same approach is is taken with diabetic neuropathy, where these electrical um, the signals of this nerve damage in the feet go through the spinal cord up to the brain, where they're read as as burning, tingling pain in the foot. So when electricity is applied to the spine, even during a trial period, which is outpatient about one week, the patient feels a dampening of that painful signal in their foot. They feel it almost immediately when the stimulation is applied. So they're able to really, during that trial period, uh, experience, hey, with my foot pain under 50%, 70% control as compared to where it was last week, I can go out and take a walk or I'm able to stand and walk. I'm able to sleep better. I'm able to take a shower where hot water dripping on my feet isn't painful. The patient experiences that relief during the trial and then qualifies, getting at least 50% or greater relief qualifies then for the implanted device which goes in and then the patient is able to, as we've seen over and over now, as we've started doing this following FDA approval, they're able to start on a walking program and they're able to start getting their diabetes under better control. And so not only are they getting a win from their foot pain symptoms, but we start seeing their health improve as they become more active. So we're, we're really, really excited about this indication. And we feel that there has been lack of awareness of this. There's a lot of diabetics out there that have been really shrugged off by their by their diabetic management doctors, their endocrinologists, their primary care doctors who have maybe addressed it with a medication. There's a medication called gabapentin or other medications, but really haven't followed through on that. Is the medication working? Is it effective? Is it giving you side effects? They've been, they just view it as we've treated it, we've given them the medication, and they don't really talk about that anymore. If the patient continues to suffer, the patient's not doing well. And so we think in collaboration with our diabetes colleagues, for example, there's an upcoming uh, meeting, the ADA meeting, and our Abbott Diabetes Division is prominent there with our Freestyle Libre glucose control or glucose monitor. And so we'll be there in collaboration with our diabetes division to start trying to raise awareness of this treatment 
for diabetic neuropathy, which we feel is a largely undertreated situation right now. Now would so the treatment of this would require one of the the diabetes physicians to refer to the pain specialists who are managing all your other neuromodulation products as well. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Or or the patient's primary care doctor, or sometimes the patients can self-refer depending on how their you know what their medical system is like. So any of the any of those. And I understand you've had some uh, some recent good news about your Eterna product, Alan. Can you uh, give us a little more information on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're very excited to continue to advance technology in a patient-centric fashion. We've largely relied in our uh, neuromodulation therapies on non-rechargeable systems, systems that the patient implants and uses them until the battery runs out, which is usually somewhere time around seven to 10 years of duration. There is a subset of patients that need higher power in their devices and need a rechargeable system. So we were quite proud to recently develop and get FDA approval for the Eterna Spinal Cord Stimulation System, which represents the smallest neurostimulation system on the market today. And in spite of being the smallest system on the market, which is very uh, patient-friendly, when patients look at this device, they're like, oh my goodness, it's so small. And when they get it implanted, it's a very small incision. It's a very small device to have inside their body. So patients are quite happy with that silhouette of the device. And the added capability we're able to do through low energy usage of our electricity, through our algorithms of the way we apply electrical stimulation to the nerves, and through some really clever engineering to limit the power use of the device, in spite of the device being really very small, the charging burden for the device is the best in the industry. So our patients have to recharge their device on average about five times a year. So that is every couple months, they set wow. up, sets a reminder on their, on their device to recharge it very infrequently in spite of it uh, being a very uh, tiny implantable device. So we're, we're really, really excited about the Eterna system. The FDA recently also granted us new MRI compatibility indications for this device. So the device is not only the smallest in the industry, but it has its own parity with the best MRI indications in the space, which as patients age and get other medical conditions, increasingly MRI compatibility for these devices becomes uh, more and more important with the, again, with that aging population. That's a good thing, but it's a challenge for the medical system to cope with, uh, you know, the aging population. Absolutely. Well, a lot of exciting news over there at Abbott. It's great to see this space uh, getting the traction it needs. As we've talked about, pain is such a pressing issue and a debilitating issue for so many uh, people across the world. So it's great to, to hear about this progress, Alan, and uh, thank you for joining us in the podcast. Thanks for the great questions, Tom. It was really a pleasure talking to you today. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. You can receive future episodes of the Abbott Talks podcast if you subscribe to our Device Talks podcast network. If you subscribe to the Abbott Talks podcast on any major podcast player, you'll receive future episodes of Abbott Talks as well as our other great podcasts, including our Device Talks weekly podcast. So please do subscribe. Please do share this episode on social media. We'd love to hear about your thoughts or love to read your thoughts on this episode. So when you do share this on LinkedIn, please connect with me or uh, tag me. I'm Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I, at Device Talks. You can find me there. And I'd love to be part of your future MedTech conversations. Even if you're not posting, connect with me anywhere. I love to talk to folks and say hello and hear what you're thinking about. Once again, I'd like to thank Resident Link for sponsoring this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. Make sure you go to Resident Link's website for more information. Go to Resident Link 
reson.com. That's R-E-S-O-N-A-N-T-L-I-N-K.com. All right, folks, thanks again for joining us on this episode of Avatox. We're already working on episode number three, so make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. 